Democrats, in my opinion, did not do themselves any good by starting a process that, number one, had them all stating for the last two and a half years that anything and everything was going to lead to or be an impeachment. Welcome to Real Impeachment. This is Ross Garber. Our guest today is Abby Lowell. Uh, Abby is one of the key go-to lawyers for public officials who have significant issues. Uh, his client list is very long. He's represented Senator Bob Menendez. He represented Senator John Edwards. He's represented Jared Navanka Kushner. He's represented a lot of people in very challenging situations. And we're going to talk to him a little bit about that. Uh, but mostly what we're going to talk to him about is his time as the chief investigative counsel for the House Judiciary Committee Democrats the last time there was a presidential impeachment, which was obviously uh, during the Clinton impeachment proceedings. So he's the one that House Judiciary Committee Democrats turn to to kind of lead their effort during the Clinton impeachment process. And in this interview, Abby tells some fascinating little-known stories about the Clinton impeachment. Uh, he also compares the current impeachment process to the last presidential impeachment. And he has some pretty pointed things to say about how Congress is doing its job this time around. Uh, and he does not pull any punches. It was a fascinating discussion. And I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed it. So thanks for doing this, Abby. Hey, you know, to, to start off with, you know, you and I have known each other a long time, but I, you know, I'd be interested to know, because I've never asked you, how did you kind of get into, you know, what you're doing now, becoming a, a white-collar criminal defense lawyer? I think, Ross, the answer to the question is your answer and probably everybody's answer. Um, a little bit of this is what I'd like to do, a little bit of being in the right place at the right time. And one case begets the other. So back in the day when I decided to come to Washington and be part of the Justice Department, I militated towards the part of the Justice Department that did criminal work. And then when I was in that position, got to work for both the Deputy Attorney General and the Attorney General and became involved in various white-collar issues. And then I decided I needed some trial experience, so I went over to the U.S. Attorney's Office to get that. And then when I went into private practice, I was lucky that the first people that came to see me and the people I started my law firm with were people that needed that kind of work in the first, then beget the second, and the second, the third. What I mostly want to talk to you about is is the Clinton impeachment process. How, how did you find yourself in the middle of that? Did, you, did somebody call you one day and say, hey, you want to work on an impeachment? A similar story, in effect. So when we started a firm and we started working in the area of criminal law and a part of criminal law, being based in Washington, off the bat, a good number of cases had something to do with people in office, fighting the government, interacting with two or three branches, representing public officials, getting to know the leadership of public official parties. And so by 1998, what happened was the leader in the House of Representatives of the, of the Democrats, Richard Gebhardt, and I knew each other and the people who advised him knew each other. They decided, as the Starr investigation was continuing, that it could lead to a recommendation of impeachment. They recognized it was a new phenomenon. They decided they needed what they said was kind of a, quote, real white-collar trial lawyer, end quote. We knew each other from the various representations that I had had 
And so they made the connection in their head, and I got a call from leader Gebhardt, and that's how it started. So you, you came on even before the Star Report was delivered. So I was first contacted in the spring of 2000, I'm sorry, 1998. Probably March or April, I ran into uh, Mr. Gebhardt at an event. He called me aside, said this is what he was thinking about. Then we went through the vetting process. There were a number of people considered, as I now know. Um, it was channeled to the Judiciary Committee, the chairman of which at the time was John Conyers, who I also knew. And I was actually brought on in the summer, uh, probably six weeks or so before it turned out that Ken Starr issued his report. Of course, I don't know that anybody knew precisely when it was going to happen, if it was going to happen. So everybody wanted to be in the ready. The Republicans who were in the majority hired their staff before we did. And a couple of the people that I worked with were actually hired before I was working as advisors to the Judiciary Committee being in the wait in case it happened. They didn't hire your firm. Did You went on as staff? I was hired as, I guess, people have been working now as uh, as persons hired by the House of Representatives itself. And your title was what, what Chief Investigative Counsel? Uh, yeah, it was Chief Minority Investigative Counsel. I actually didn't know you got hired before or enlisted before the Star Report came in. Um, so so then the the star reports completed it, it comes in and uh my recollection was that the house wasn't quite sure like how to handle it and what to do with it and where to keep it and whether to make it public and how much to make it public like how, how did that how did that work then so before independent counsel star provided his report and its backup material those of us who had been on the scene weren't just doing nothing. We did research to be in the ready, and I spent a good part of those six weeks or however many weeks it was reading every precedent that existed on impeachment. What was impeachment? What was it intended to be? What did the founders think of it? What had been the issues in the Johnson impeachment? What had been the issues in the Nixon impeachment? Trying to have a real good background. And then when the Star Report came, you're right, um, we got a call one day that the boxes were on their way, covered live by cable news that had helicopters, I guess, seeing the boxes being loaded onto big vans and driven over. That's when we knew. The House didn't have much of a heads up, although I can tell you a funny anecdote. The anecdote is that we were given space to work in at the Ford House office building, and a conference room that had the place to put materials, file cabinets that were locked with their own combination. And somebody had to figure out how many file cabinets to put in. That wasn't necessarily random, or maybe it was. One of the fun little tidbits that people don't know is that when the boxes came, they fit precisely into the number of cabinet <laughs> draws that we were given. Just just by happenstance? Now, or, or you, may, you decide. Or maybe Washington, not. You know? Yeah, exactly. So yeah. Um, they came, and then the House had to come up with its procedure, which was initially, I guess, you know, shepherded by then-Speaker Gingrich, with whom we had meetings, as well as the majority staff. And it was sent to the Rules Committee, who then worked with the Judiciary Committee, to make decisions as to how it was going to happen, when it was going to be um, opened to the staff, what was going to the procedure for then the Judiciary Committee to handle a decision as to whether opening an impeachment inquiry just because an independent counsel said so doesn't mean it happened, what would be the timing 
what would be the process of um, opening witnesses, testimony, that all had to be determined by the leadership on both sides using the Rules Committee and the Judiciary Committee. Yeah, and even before we get there, I, you know, I went back and took a look, and when the Star Report got to the House, I think there was a press conference uh, that both the ma- majority and the minority leaders had to, to kind of talk about uh, the fact that they were receiving the Star Report. Do you, do you remember anything about that? Yes, of course I do. Uh, what I remember is, or what I think the record will demonstrate, is from the get-go, people didn't really know what Ken Starr and his team were going to say. It had been alluded to, and yet in its details, it wasn't. So to begin with, there was at least a degree of, I'm going to use a weird word given 2019, there was a degree of bipartisanship about at least how to deal with the process. And therefore, the two sets of leaders, Speaker Gingrich, Mr. Gebhardt, and their advisors were working together, at least in part, to figure out what to do with this new thing that hadn't happened in, at that point, you know, 20 some odd years. And so there were guest conferences, both public and private, to try to work it out. I don't remember the details of the public conference that you're alluding to, but I certainly was there. I remember um, both Speaker Gingrich and others in the deputy's office of his and and leader Gebhardt um, dealing with those issues. Yeah, I mean, it, it just struck me that there there was that that coordination between the majority and the minority. So so they get the report, um, and and then you're trying to figure out kind of what to do with it. Uh, you know, what was the process like of 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 kind of figuring out how to go forward? And one of the things I'm particularly interested in is uh, is how it was decided whether to call witnesses or not before the Judiciary Committee. So the way it was talked about might have been different on the majority and the minority side. Look, the majority in 1998, like the majority now, don't operate without their political might. They, in 1998, did not need more than what they already had. Let's be clear. They had an independent counsel. They had an independent counsel who said the president of the United States had done wrong. They had an independent counsel who said the president had done wrong and they were impeachable offenses based on a long set of grand jury investigations and already formulated boxes of evidence. Because it didn't take long to see that what the Star report said was that the president was engaged in private inappropriate conduct and then lied about it, that it was pretty clear from the beginning for the Democrats and the minority that we could take the Star report as it was presented and deal with it without starting over, without having to call all the witnesses again. Because in a way, lawyer talk, If this had been a motion to dismiss or a motion for summary judgment, you could accept the facts as being true and argue that it didn't amount to an impeachable offense. So I do need to tell another little tidbit, which makes these things more interesting than not. This has been covered by books, but it's not well remembered. On the Friday that we were going to be given access to the materials and the evidence, we had a meeting in the morning with Leader Gebhardt and others. And um, Leader in the Senate, Tom Daschle, was there. 
and his staff. And I and one or two of my deputies were there. And people don't know this, but it wasn't clear from the get-go that the Democrats were going to rally behind President Clinton. Because remember, it wasn't clear what it was he was being quite accused of. And we're in the Capitol, and leader Gebhardt and Majority Leader Daschle are talking, and one of the two of them, I forgot which now, turned to me and said, so, Abby, when you and your staff get access to this material on Friday, I assume you'll be working through the weekend. And, and I guess it was Dashiell because he said, Dick and I need to talk to you on Monday and get your assessment about whether the president had committed an impeachable offense and whether the evidence is strong to back it up. Because if we all conclude that that's the case, it will be he and I that march up Pennsylvania Avenue and ask the president to resign. Holy cow. Yeah, so it was definitely not clear. Wow, no kidding. No, no, it wasn't. And people assumed that the Democrats were in the tank. I think, you know, look, some of the Democrats on the Judiciary Committee, you know, to use a phrase that's now become vogue, believe that if the president had shot somebody on Fifth Avenue, they would have supported him. But I think there were a lot of Democrats, including the leaders, that wanted to understand what the charges were and what the evidence was. And it wasn't knee-jerk and it wasn't automatic. Now, to be fair, it wouldn't take us very long to conclude that what Starr et al. were doing was reinventing the concept of high crimes and misdemeanors and making into an impeachable offense that which the founders would have not in 100 years, maybe 200 and some odd years to be precise, would have imagined would fit that definition. Mm-hmm. And that the evidence of that was, you know, in addition to being not a crime or misdemeanor, high crime misdemeanor, the evidence was also scattered. It didn't take long. So that those who started by saying, look, we want to know what's there, it didn't take them very long to go, wait, I don't know what it is, but it ain't this. Remember, I'm sure you've broadcast this before, but it was Gerald Ford when he was in the House um, who made the famous quote that impeachment is whatever a majority of the House of Representatives says it is whenever it says yeah, and, and and now we're stuck with that. And Abby, as you were going through the material, um, how how much did you coordinate with uh, White House lawyers or the president's private lawyers? Varied degrees at various times. In the first bit of time, I'm not sure that they were given. I just don't remember if they were given immediate co-equal access. I don't think they were. We had an enormous lot to do. Um, again, in the keeping of. Congress doesn't ever get out of its complete political nature. We had two-thirds the number of people than were given the majority. So we only had like a staff of five or six people, and they had like 10. And we just had an enormous amount to do in that first 72 and 96 hours. I didn't spend any time talking to anybody other than the team. I think after we came to our conclusions and reported to our leaders in that week, we, of course, started to communicate with both White House counsel Chuck Ruff and his and his team, his colleagues, and the president's personal lawyers. And depending on the time and the circumstances, we had more or less in terms of what they were going to do, what access they were going to be given when there was an issue of hearings, what their role would be. Um, and if you remember, in addition to that, at least on the House side, um, they also – I think President Clinton had contacts with and, and found um, his own special counsel to help coordinate or at least to be involved. And that was Greg Craig. Yeah, yeah. So so it's interesting. You didn't view yourselves as being kind of a part 
uh, of the president's defense team. And it wasn't like kind of a, a, a total joint defense agreement where, you know, you were attached at the hip with the president's White House and private counsel. Huh? It's a very apt um, summary you just made. And it's really important, I think, historically to have made it. So as I said to you before, starting minute one, it was not clear that the House Democrats were going to, as a group, say the president was right. And that's fine. And then even as they began to do that, there was not the same degree of we are completely 100 percent in the same Venn circle. We are completely aligned. It wasn't that we were disaligned. It's just that we thought that our job was to represent the interests of Congress. And if you look at the statement I made in opening the impeachment inquiry and then again throughout, we came to the conclusion, and it's not the royal we here, it's my colleagues, it's the leaders, it's chair, it's Menard, it was um, ranking member Conyers and leader Gephardt, that we were representing the interests of the United States Congress. I took that very seriously. I was not representing the interests of the executive branch. I was representing the interests of a Congress that was given by the founders the job of deciding whether or not an impeachable offense had occurred. And every time I could, representing those decisions, I tried to make clear that that was our role. And so it was never that it was we were just fungible with the president's lawyers. Now, it turns out that what we came to believe and put forward was 100 percent aligned with their position. But it wasn't because we didn't conduct our own evaluation of what our role was. And we really did believe, and it may be a difference between 1998 and 2019, that our job was less partisan and much more constitutional. And, and, and speaking of the differences between, you know, then and now, uh, when when you guys uh, adopted the rules for the process, uh they were identical to the Nixon rules. Um, how was that decision made, you know, if you remember, as opposed to sort of starting over again or changing things? Because the rules now are, are a bit different. One of the analogies I used and one of the things that I did, I remember now that you're asking me the question, I think I said that trying to put a modern gloss on impeachment, I think I said something like impeachment should be viewed as that box on the wall with the sign that says only break in case of emergency. And I think what happened in 1998 was when we looked, well, there had only been one impeachment process started in the modern era. That was Nixon. People don't remember that he was neither impeached nor convicted, but he realized that the handwriting was on the wall and resigned. But the process that had been voted was the only recent precedent. And it seemed both serious and fair enough. The only thing that's not fair in the process, even if you adopt the Nixon rules, was that it still exists where there is a minority and majority. It's not like it was an ethics committee where there's an equal number of Democrats and an equal number of Republicans. The Republicans had the majority they used that political power every time they could when they had an agenda that they wanted to put forward. But at least in principle, we were given equal ability. But here's an example. You're given equal ability, but we were given half the staff. We're given equal ability, but we're stuck in the worst offices. We're given equal ability, but I had to go out to Office Depot and buy our own supplies. 
it's those little things, as you know, as a child yeah, yeah, yeah. Learner, that, that can make all the difference. That, that does make a difference. And so we did look at the precedents. We were using that model. It on paper made sense. It mostly did work. Um, but that's where we went. And I have been asked when this new impeachment process was beginning the same question. And it did seem to me that the Democrats decided that they would do it differently by, if you will, having the Intelligence Committee be their inquisitor and it being done privately to begin with, et cetera. People can decide whether that was right or wrong. I'm just saying it was different. I mean, the, the Nixon process was done privately. You know, it strikes me that the, the biggest difference between, you know, Nixon and Clinton and then, you know, versus today is the ability of the president's lawyers to participate because, you know, in Nixon and Clinton, you know, as you know, at least there there was the right uh, if there were evidentiary hearings and if there were witnesses for the president's lawyers to participate and cross-examine. When those when the rules were adopted in Clinton, uh, was it already known that essentially there wouldn't be um, fact witness testimony? So, you know, no big deal? Not 100 percent, but but along that path. But you're right. That was a fundamental difference. And of course, the president's lawyers, which would have been in the same mode as the House Intelligence Committee proceedings today, would have had the right to participate. They could have decided that they did or didn't want to. If they were given the right, how much time, what's the sequence, when do they get to do it? That was a fundamental difference. But I do think, as I said earlier, that once people cracked open the however many boxes and read the report and looked at the evidence, that we, representing the interests of the House, Democrats, came to the conclusion, I didn't need to reinvent the wheel. Everything I needed was in the boxes to show that whatever else you thought of the president's conduct, it was not an impeachable offense. And so the idea of having Betty Curry, Monica Lewinsky, Vernon Jordan, or any number of people come and say again what they had said in grand jury or, or FBI-type interviews made no sense. It, it was basically, let's take the record as it exists, because the record as it exists really is all that's necessary to put forward the proposition that this doesn't rise to that level. Do you, do you remember whether it was a hard sell to sell the majority on on the right of the president's lawyers to be able to participate if there were witnesses called? Was that was that a? Yeah, I, I don't think so at all. I don't remember that being either something argued about or much controversy. And again, remember, at the time, there was a solemnity. There was at least a seriousness. It was slightly less partisan. People were thinking, what do we do now than there is today? And so everybody, even the majority that knew that they had the power, recognized that they needed to have something to hold on to as precedent, and that was the one that was there. So it wasn't a big ask, and it wasn't a big controversy. And that's interesting, too, because the situation has changed. I mean, think of that analogy I said. It's like, I guess the question really is, back in 1974, where did those guys look? Where did those women look for precedent? Because I'm not sure that there was a whole lot to glean from Johnson 100 years before. So we could then build on what happened in the 70s, and it wasn't very controversial to do that. But remember something I don't want to put forward that this was the most pristine, most objective, most neutral process ever, because at the end of the day, Chairman Hyde, Speaker Gingrich, Speaker Livingston, and everybody else on their side knew one thing. 
they had the votes. They did not want to let the president survive. They were going to equate whatever he did to an impeachable offense, no matter what. The Democrats in 1998 made the same allegation that the Republicans were making in 219, which is that you've been trying to get rid of this guy from the beginning. You're just finding the most convenient way to do it. The difference, of course, is that they had to elevate something about private conduct to become an impeachable event. Here, it's about President Trump's official conduct, whether you think it is or isn't. It's a big difference. Do you get the sense that it that it's substantially I mean, it, you know, back when when it was going on, it seemed as if the Clinton impeachment process was very partisan. Do you get the sense that it's that much more partisan now in, in a in a fundamental way? Because it does strike me that the process has been has been different. Uh, you know, the uh, you know, even just, the, you know, the notion that the rules are different. Uh, is that because do you think it is that much more partisan or is there something else going on? Again, I think you've really put your finger on something that's really interesting to note. The structure of the process in 1998 on paper was much less partisan and much more fair. The application of events to the process was very partisan then and is partisan now. And if you could have a partisan thermometer and try to decide whether it was a higher degree then than now, I'm not sure. I remember very well how partisan the Judiciary Committee proceedings were. And, you know, sort of what made it even more so is that you start with the same premise, that the Republicans just blew completely by the concept that if at the core you have a fundamentally private event that somehow can interpret into an official act, which can then be an impeachable offense. And that infuriated the Democrats. Here, the partisanship that exists isn't over whether or not if the president did what he's accused of doing, it would be a high crime or misdemeanor. It's more about they're saying that the facts don't support it. And that's not an insignificant difference, because what caused the Democrats to really lose their themselves was that notion. So you're right to reflect that it was very partisan then, and it was very disturbingly so. Again, I don't want to put forward that anything I said or did made a difference or was all that insightful, because in retrospect, it didn't much matter. But I do remember in the very beginning of one of the presentations to the Judicial Committee, I used as the analogy when I was sitting at table looking up at Chairman Hyde and Mr. Conyers that there were the portraits of Peter Rodino and Henry Hyde sitting above them in a different era when the different majority and minority and said, you know, this reflects a time when people came together to come up with a process and an application that worked without regard to the parties involved. But that ended in 1998 and certainly is no longer existence in 219. Remember as well, and I, I don't want to expand your question long, broader than it needs to be, but do think of this. 1998 was not an event in a vacuum. The demise of objectivity in Congress had started before that. People have various points. My point is it was when Speaker Gingrich took over with the Contract for America and decided to make ethics investigations and attacks on Democrats part of the political agenda. And then the pendulum swept back and forth, and they did it to each other until it culminated with the impeachment in 1998. And one could make the argument that the pendulum has been swinging for the remaining 20 years. And I know I've got to let you go, but 
just kind of following up on on that issue of of the partisanship, you know, notwithstanding the partisanship back then, uh, you know, 31 members of the president's own party voted to authorize an impeachment inquiry. And, uh, you know, as you know, it was it was fundamentally about the president's private conduct. But, you know, nevertheless, 31 members of the president's own party voted to authorize an impeachment investigation. Several voted to impeach the president. You know, by contrast, uh, it looks like, well, by contrast, zero Republicans voted to authorize the impeachment inquiry into President Trump and two Democrats voted no. It looks like uh, no Republicans are going to vote uh, in favor of impeachment. And you know, an equal number of Democrats, or maybe even you know more, uh, you know, than than those two will vote uh, against impeaching President Trump. Yeah, and it, it, do you have a do you have a sense of whether the way the process has been conducted uh, or the rules were established bears on? why that is, you know, why it seems like the partisan divide is so much greater in 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 this situation. I do. Uh, so you can't start the conversation by stating that it happens solely over the impeachment proceedings of 219. We have lived over the last however many years, and certainly since the election in 16, in the highest degree of partisanship bickering, obstructive behavior in Congress that we have lived in in my lifetime. That's the background music. And if you ignore that background music, it's not like all of a sudden we get this very constitutionally significant event called impeachment and everybody rises to the occasion and performs the way the founders would have liked. They reform based on the momentum they got from what's been happening for the last three or four years. So you got to start there. Secondly, the Democrats, in my opinion, did not do themselves any good by starting a process that, number one, had them all stating for the last two and a half years that anything and everything was going to lead to or be an impeachment, because it basically got them to be able to be criticized that there's going to be nothing, you know, it'll be soon that the president's motorcade sped down an interstate, and that's an impeachable event. So they basically chipped away at that credibility and allowed the Republicans to then say it was partisan. And then the process that they did, especially in this last go-around over Ukrainian things, again, was different than the process in 74 and 98, and it led to that as well. So if you take all that and put it in a blender and put the switch on, you're going to get what you now see is happening. Yeah. Um, and, and, And so the last question is, any sort of insight or predictions on what you think is going to happen now? You know, it, it, at this point, it looks like the Judiciary Committee is going to going to wrap up its work uh, over the next week or so. Uh, what's your sense of 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 what happens so next? I'm not, I'm not a better tea leaver than tea leaf reader than you are, but I will say a few things that look obvious. Speaker Pelosi, over the last year, has tried, I think, admirably not to let this be, we'll impeach him over anything and everything. And it finally got to the point where an event occurred which made it different in her mind and in the mind of the other Democratic leaders. That said, you have still all those people that wanted to impeach the president for anything. And so I don't think that the House can change the course that's now been set. 
And there will be articles of impeachment. They will be voted on because it's only a majority in the Judiciary Committee. They will be passed in the House. It will go over to the Senate. What the Senate does is, I think, a little bit more interesting to us now. Will it develop a process by which it can be decided, if you will, on a motion to dismiss? Will it have to have an actual full-out trial? Will it be a truncated trial? Will it be about just the Ukrainian events? Will it be about something out of Mueller? We're not quite clear about that. What I think everybody knows is that the result is absolutely predictable. As you said, there may not be one Republican vote for impeachment in the House, and there might be every Republican vote for acquittal in the Senate. And therefore, that outcome will be foregone. I don't know if that's good or bad. I just know that it won't change the political partisan nature of what's happened, and it won't do well for the process that we call impeachment, because the more that this happens every 20 years, the more it gets diluted. And here's what I think is a good concluding thought, maybe. The problem that we have in 19 is that everybody would agree that if a president of the United States held up foreign aid or did something in that kind of official way, and on the other side it was, so will you give my relative a job? Okay, not right, impeachable. If the conversation was, I'm going to do this, I'm going to withhold, I'm going to do something, and will you allow me to build a hotel or a or take the, you know, give me a license to build something? Not good. Okay, now we get to the gray area. For President of the United States says, I'm going to do X or Y, but I have to tell you, I don't want you to spend a dollar of American foreign aid on a country that's riddled with corruption. And unless you're very serious about corruption, then I don't know that we can go forward like this. Everybody would say, fine. Now, if he adds in the sentence, you know, corruption as an example, the so-and-so company, people will say fine. If he said corruption, the so-and-so company, and by the way, isn't that where one of my political opponents' kids work? Maybe not. And where along that continuum is that? And that's not what's really being discussed because we're not at that fine level. We're at a higher level where people are just shouting at each other. And that doesn't make for a better record. Yeah, well, it, it, it may be that uh, soon we're going to actually have to get down to that level of facts um, but maybe not. Abby, hey, thank you very, very much for, for doing this. This was fun. Okay, thanks, Ross. Glad to talk to you. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, if you did, please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review and share this episode. And as always, I love to hear from you at Ross Garber on Twitter. Uh, hope you join me next time.